Welcome to Night Light. Step away from the mainstream and gather around as we enlighten the world and our realities and travel this cosmic journey we call life. Join us as we share with you and provide that beacon that can guide us all to a better way. Explore with us as we examine a metaphysical montage of spiritual insights covering everything from the mundane to the magical, UFOs to unicorns, and everything in between. This is a time of awakening, of sharing and evolving, of spreading our wings and soaring on the cosmic breath of creation. Come and join with other light-minded spirits as we weave our lights together to seek understanding, enlightenment, and with a little luck, some wisdom. This is Nightlight, a reminder that you are never alone. Thank you for joining us for a special afternoon edition of Nightlight. I hope everyone's having a great week. Um, I'm going to start off by reading a paragraph from Founders of Freedom. Uh, it's a... Um, edited by David Whitney, Thomas Jones, etc. Um, and it's a book that has these uh, biographies of the uh, signers of the Declaration of Independence. And with the section on Francis Lewis of New York, the Authors wrote, uh, during the French and Indian War, Lewis acted as an agent to supply the British troops with clothing. While on a mission to Fort Oswego, New York in 1756, he was captured by the French. Legend has it that he saved his scalp from the Indian allies of the French because the Indians believed he was speaking their tongue when he talked to them in his native Welsh. Okay. So when and how did a few Native Americans in a particular area, Fort Oswego, New York, uh, become fluent in Welsh, in the Welsh language prior to 1756? What percentage of the widely spaced American colonists were Welsh speakers. You know, there are the many stories of the distrust and hostilities between the colonists and Native Americans. So who took the time to teach a foreign language to the Native Americans? This scenario isn't adding up unless the listeners consider there was a far more or there was far more of a contact between Wales and America for a long time, 
prior to 1756. Maybe there was ancient, a greater ancient global sea uh, travel than previously thought. We have a Welshman who really lives in Wales and speaks Welsh as our guest today. Ross Broadstock hosts the Britain's Hidden History Ross YouTube channel. Ross has edited the works of Wilson and Blackett's writings on hidden history, and Ross has a new book, Kumri Glyphics. You can learn more about Ross by going to his website, kumriglyphics.com, or Britain's Hidden History .co.uk or subscribe to his YouTube channel, Britain's Hidden History Ross. Hi Ross, how are you? Hello, thank you. Thank you for a nice welcome. Very well, thank you. Good. Um, okay. Ross, when I backpacked through the British Isles after college, um, I got to some places in Ireland and Wales. Um, I had no idea what I was reading on the signs. Uh, fortunately, there were English captions under. Is, is, is it considered like you know, Gaelic language? Uh, no, it's Cymraeg, uh, uh, the, the language of Wales. Okay. So it's, just, it's it's its own language. Yes, it, okay. it was in Britain and Ireland way before Gaelic turned up. Okay, so it, yeah. Uh, well, what was on the signs wasn't anything like uh, English. Uh, you, know, you get the Fs, double Ds, double Ls. So, sometimes it's all in the same word. Uh, I mean, <laughs> like yeah. e even you know, with a little bit of Latin, uh, yeah, you might be able to you know, kind of figure out something. Yeah, kind of a little bit like you know, this Latin word sounds a little bit like you know. Something in English, you might be able to figure it out, but uh, Welsh, you know, it, it, it's really it was you know, literally a totally foreign language for me. So, you know, I think this is a new topic for Nightlight, but maybe not all that different from when we have had Normandy Ellis on. So, um, I thought maybe. We could start off with you saying something in Welsh, and we can maybe, okay. yeah, yeah, well, maybe get, get a, 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 an idea of the sound of the language. Okay, well, the problem, Diochen Vaur, Dwin Vim Sharikam Rai. So I'm saying this, thank you very much. I, I don't really speak Welsh. <laughs> That's the, <laughs> I, I do know a fair amount of Welsh, and I am from Wales, so to my shame. Uh, sadly, I mean, this is uh, part of the problem we have here, where three of my four grandparents were all fluent Welsh speakers, and, and two didn't even speak English. And yet, by the time it came to my parents' generation, neither of my parents spoke Welsh. The language has been really persecuted and, uh, and drummed out of people, unfortunately. So there's a, re a revival going on now, but you don't find 
many people in South East Wales who, uh, who speak Welsh or as a first ton, although it is coming back. Uh, you know, we're trying to learn how to speak Welsh. So. Okay. Uh, when... Can I just say on them, you'd be surprised though with the, it's not so, the language looks very strange and part, part of that is to do with the, the spelling more than anything. It's a very phonetic language, so the letters mean the same thing wherever they're seen. So a double F is a soft F sound, like in funny or something like that. Whereas a single F is a V, that'd be the harder sound, like very, so very funny. So you'd have a single F and then a double F. If you can get past the the spelling and, and the, a W and a Y also be in vowels, you'd be surprised how much of uh, the English language actually comes from Welsh. And this is one of those uh, closely guarded secrets. One, one which uh, came up the other day in my book was I put the word uh, mattress in there. Okay. And the person editing my book is actually from California. So we had a good, good uh, uh, outside viewpoint on it. Oh, that can't be a Welsh word. So I got the old Welsh dictionaries and we took it out to me going back hundreds of years. And ma, M-A, uh, means a place. And tras is the verb trasu, to spread out. So a very ancient expression is matras, is there to spread out your place, to, to make a place to lie on. So it's surprising how many old words come from Welsh, although it might not be so obvious to see that now. Oh, okay. That, uh, that, that makes sense. I, you know, it's just, you know, one is, um, and just by looking at the words, um, it, it is very uh, different than English, uh, but you also said that there is a revival of you know, people wanting to speak their, their native language when I was in um Yes, yes. Uh, the Orkney Islands. Um, I did get a, a sweater, or, an Orkney sweater, and an Aran sweater, perhaps was it? Uh, uh, no, it, it was um, uh, made in a um, you know a little cottage. Okay, there in the yes. Orkney Islands, you know, had you know a, the higher uh, caller. Uh, yeah, fantastic. It, 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 uh, it, it was Helga Tate's uh, sweater shop. You know, she, she was making sweaters uh, based on the traditional, um, you know, tr- traditional fab, uh, you know, wool. Um, yes, yeah, so twisting and knotting and that kind of thing. Yeah, beautiful. Yeah. Yes, yes. Yeah, and. and, and she, you know, is just one sample of the revival. You know, this was what thirty years ago, but you know, she she was involved in that um, um, revitalization of local crafts, and you know, even your son was uh, uh, playing f- fiddle. At the start of your show on Sunday. All oh, right. Yes. Yes. That's yes. right. Yes. 
Yeah, so so I was like, oh, okay, you know, there's you know, just, yeah, we try and play some traditional tunes and things yeah. like that just to get the give people a chance to log in and uh, get the spirit going. Yeah, no, and he 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 did a terrific job. Um, it was it, it it's just nice to see uh, that kind of interest in uh, keep keeping the uh, culture and traditions alive. Yes, yes, that's very important. We pass these things on because they're. Just, I mean, the crucial point in. Well, let's go back with the language. The, okay. There was a time when the the whole of Britain would have spoken some sort of uh, Britonic, is the term the use of British, but uh, either speaking Cymraic, Welsh, or very similar to Welsh. And the changes have happened since then. So in in Scotland, you mentioned, for example. There, it's a strange one because the revival is to bring back uh, Gaelic, the old Scottish Gaelic language. Whereas that comes from the Scots. Well, the Scots only went to Scotland in the sort of 6th and 7th centuries AD. Before that, they were in Ireland. This <laughs> way it gets confusing. The Scots are from Ireland and they moved in and they brought the Gaelic language with them. Before that, Scots in the, in the south spoke uh, a British language. And if you go around their place names in the southern half of Scotland, you will see that they have uh, Welsh names and named after Welsh people. Uh, one, one famous example, if you go to Glasgow, there's a very famous area called Govan. Govan. Uh, well, that's named after St. Gavine, or Gavine, who was there, a saint uh, from Wales. Because Christianity, this is the book we have out uh, just recently, is the well, this week, really, where Jesus is buried. And that explains how Christianity began um, in South Wales with Joseph of Arimathea and the Holy Family coming there after the crucifixion. Uh, because this is the place where the Hebrews had migrated to in 500 BC. So they had uh, kindred spirits. And the, the, the Vatican actually records this. Uh, Bronius confirms that Christianity started in South Wales in 36 AD. So almost immediately after the crucifixion in the last year of Tiberius. So from there, that um, there was a different form of Christianity. This is the problem. This, this, this version spread all over the place, uh, particularly into northern France, into Gaul, you know, into Brittany, mm-hmm. uh, which is a British area. That's the name, Brittany, because where the Britons uh, captured that in the 380s. And it's only later that Constantine, who was born in Britain, introduced Christianity as the official language uh, in Rome at the Council of Nicaea. And only after then did, uh, but it's a very different form of Christianity. You know, you had all these things like um, a pope at the top and you had to intercede via a priest. Uh, Various doctrines changed. Uh, And this was really the beginning of the suppression of British history all that time ago when that uh, origins of what they call uh, Gnostic Christianity uh, and apostolic. So you'd have a, a, a teacher would come along, gather a group of students, teach them, and then as they developed, they would go off and find their own uh, groups. Mm-hmm. And it was much closer to uh, Buddhism in a way, really. It believed in um, eternal soul, reincarnation. Uh, things like uh, hell and purgatory were introduced by the Catholic Church later from Rome. So this is the first part of the problem. Uh, <laughs> so you can trace a lot of that back. For example, the name Jesus. 
uh, comes from the ancient Welsh word, which is yesi. Yesi, I-E-S-U. And if you go to a Welsh church, um, he's still referred to as yesi. And the original uh, trinity as well was the, um, the three Welsh words put together. So that's a whole different rabbit hole we can go down sometime. Okay. And if people want to look out, the book's out this week, uh, Where Jesus is Buried, uh, because the, according to the Welsh records, um, he physically survived the crucifixion and came to Britain. And you can see uh, where these various people are, where they're buried, the stones, the records, uh, you can follow them. So that's another another area to look into. <laughs> oh, sure. uh, we'll do, you know, we'll uh, <clears throat> set up another show and uh, get mm. get into... Yeah, stick into the language tonight, yes. Yeah, it, but... It, it, is and I'm going to uh, mispronounce it. Uh, Owen, it, like the language, it, it, does that have anything to do with the Welsh language? Sorry. Is is it uh, like people pronounce it Ogum? But it, it, oh, Ogum. Yeah, I think Ogum is a, is a red herring. I'm afraid. Uh, Okay. It's been such a concerted effort to uh, make the the British into uh, primitive barbarians with no history, no writing, can't make anything, can't build a wall even. That uh, things, stones found in Wales, they try to uh, allocate them to other people. So it'll be an attack to say, oh, it must be Roman or it must be Norman. And if that won't work, then it must be Irish and call it Ogham. But a lot of the Ogham, the tally marks around the edges of the stones, seems mm-hmm. to be more of an astronomical thing because you can count them oh. off and measure um, uh, phases of the moon and uh, phases of the planets and going around the sun. And I would highly recommend uh, Robin Heath as someone to look for. He's someone I speak to uh, and I have an interview lined up with him because mm-hmm. uh, he's a lot he's of work good. working out. Yeah, he's very good, Robin Heath. And before him, Alexander Thom. So the situation we have that, that overwrites all this is the whole idea of Irish, Welsh, or Scottish people being Celtic was only introduced in the 1700s. It's a new idea. The situation you had was that the Hanoverians took the throne in England, or were given the throne. They were puppet kings, really. The city of London put them in place. And there was genuine concern that there would be a revolution. Uh, There was massive anti-Hanoverian sentiment. They were German, they didn't speak English, they spent hardly any time in this country, and there was a national sentiment rising. So they took the throne in 1714. By 1715, you already had uh, an uprising in Scotland, the Highland Uprising. It was being fermented in Wales and in England. And this idea was introduced to try and keep the country calm. Everybody's got all this history is going to be removed. So the the, the idea of a heroic Anglo-Saxon invasion was invented, really. Uh, there's no evidence to support that. So the English were convinced that they were Germanic, Anglo-Saxons, and DNA shows that only a small percentage are. And the Scots, Irish, and Welsh were convinced that they were Celtic, and they were just barbarians that wandered over from Europe and lived in mud huts and um, didn't do anything. <laughs> it's a, uh, one of my favourite uh, comparisons is that uh, which, will, which will tie in what we're going to talk about in a minute, is that in, in America you have the, 
the declaration made in 1900 by Powell that everything pre-Columbian has to be Native American and that no outsiders can have any influence on American history. Right. Uh, whereas in Wales, we have exactly the opposite. In Wales, absolutely nothing can be indigenous or native. Everything has to be from outside. Everything. But the joke is, if a Welshman puts uh, a stone on top of another stone, he just built a Roman wall. That's one of the jokes. <laughs> so this is the problem we have, and this is why the, the, the persecution of the language goes back a long way. And it's been persecuted by the church. We were trying to force on this Roman form of Christianity. I mean, the first crusades were not in the Middle East. The first crusades were in Gaul, in France, against the, the Gnostic Christians. They were the first crusades. Uh, when, when Chlorus was given his deal that if he uh, wiped out that form of Christianity, then he would be granted the lands. And uh, a lot of encouragement. There's even, there's even some of the incentive for Claudius uh, arriving in Britain in 54 AD was to try and crush this uh, movement. So it's, it's a long time being persecuted. But what you find when you dig into it, a lot of words that we use every day are actually ancient Welsh words. And We've just been told that it's a Germanic language. Even the word English uh, seems more likely to... Like, the, the traditional story is it's named after the Angles. Well, only very small numbers came uh, who were, would identify as Angles. And there's a part in the east of England called East Anglia, which is where right. they would settle, where there were millions and millions of people living in England. So why the whole place name was suddenly changed is crazy. And what seems more likely is that the main tribe, the Iseni, where Boudicca came from and fought the Romans, their full title was Isinglas. So it's the Isinglas became English. And the language is actually more based on uh, British tongue. Uh, Sloigren would be the English, uh, rather than the Germanic, as we're told. Because isn't it curious that uh, a Welsh person can speak to someone in uh, Brittany, even though they've been separated for you know hundreds of years, over a thousand years, right. whereas an English person cannot understand German. An English person or a German person cannot communicate. So this idea that the language is German actually might not hold up when you look at it more closely. Okay. There's so <laughs> you are making a compelling case that there is an origin for the Welsh language somewhere else. So yeah, let's that's the get, key point. That's yeah, the yep. key point. Yeah, that's uh, what so, it gets to, yes. Yeah, you, you can take over from there and start okay. giving us some back, <laughs> that right, background. Well, well, what happened when you trace the – if you go back to the British records, before this rewrite in 1700, before the Hanoverians – rewrote history and he had these sort of fanatical white supremacist types like uh, uh, Edward Edwin Guest and Bishop Stubbs they introduced these new terms called uh, British barbarism was a term they loved this is barbaric British and then Edward Gibbon came along and wrote the decline and fall of the Roman Empire right. and suddenly everything that used to be British became Roman even that's not correct so if you go back to the British records before 1700 they spoke of coming from Anatolia and the Middle East. 
So, for example, you'll see uh, Shakespeare writing her play Troilus and Cressida, which is set in ancient Troy. Right. So that's where the British, this, everyone accepted that's where they came from. London used to be called uh, New Troy, Troy Noventus. That was the name for it. There's various places called Troy around Britain. So that was always accepted as the origin of the British. And they split into three main groups. So you have there in Scotland, you had the Albine migration. And in the Welsh language, Scotland is still called Alban. <laughs> so the clues are still there. You had the, the Cymru come to Wales. Wales is a German word. Uh, Cymru is the proper word. And uh, it's still called Cymru in Welsh, of course. And the English became Floegra. Uh, and in the Welsh language, it's still Floegra. So it's, it's not even hidden. It's still there. <laughs> it's just a strange thing about it. So if you follow the, the British records, they talk about uh, the first migration, about 1500 BC, which was from ancient Syria. And then you've got other clues to support this. For example, the people of Sumer ended in the area now called Sumerset. The Sumerset is where the Sumerians went. Oh, okay. Uh, and where the Syrians went is Syria, or Surrey, as it's become in more recent times. If you look on the old maps, it's spelled Siri, S-I-R-Y-E, Syria. That's where the Syrians were. Because no one explains the name Surrey. They try and say it's a southern something, but it's not. It's, it's where the Syrians went. And all around Britain, you had these different migrations taking place. So what Wilson and Blackett did, I mean, they're, they're the people I work with, the, the great historians. They were trying to f find if we could trace this migration path through the language. This is where the language is crucial. Because if you look on uh, go Wikipedia, go wherever you like, you will see the stories of Aeneas, A-E-N-A-E-S, who was a descendant from Troy. And after Troy fell, the Trojans uh, escaped to Italy, and they became the Etruscans, which is a Welsh word for those who crossed the three rivers. So even the, the word Etruscans and Tuscany in Italy, where they went. Now, in the, the weird thing is, you see, the mainstream love Roman history, but this part has to be reduced to myth status because it supports the British foundation stories, which is not allowed. So if you follow then um, the Tarquins and the Roman kings, you will come to Brutus. And Brutus, it's a very strange story of Brutus, and he's prophesied he would kill his mother and his father. Well, his mother died in childbirth, and then he's supposed to have killed his father in an accident with a bow and arrow on a hunting trip. So he had to leave the country, and what he did then, the people who were in Anatolia, half had gone to set up the Etruscans. The other half was still in Anatolia, modern-day Turkey. So he went and collected those from the island of Lemnos, and they sailed to Britain. And the name Britain comes from, his name in Welsh is Brut. So it's Brut, Brutan is the land of Brut, because that's where it became Britain, as opposed to Cymru and Floiga and Alban, as it was before, or Prydine. So tracing back, the great thing is, what Wilson Blackett, and this was done back in the 1990s, he was posted in Italy for work. And on his weekends, he would go and look at the museums. And he discovered that you could read Etruscan using the Welsh language. Now, if you look, look go and check officially, they still cannot read Etruscan. <laughs> this is the mad thing about it. 
because they do not try the Welsh language. You try anything. They've tried all sorts of things, but they won't try the Welsh language. The other thing, which gets back to the stones in your question about organ, is that the, the, the British have an ancient writing system called Colbren, C-O-E-L-B-R-E-N. And it's to do with the holy wood, because it was carved on wood. And this is an ancient writing system. Uh, the Romans referred to it. Caesar refers to it. It goes all the way back. Um, you can find ciphers written in the 1520s by Llewellyn Sean. Uh, there's lots of medieval references. And yet, officially, it's, it's um, a forgery created in 1800. This is what we're up against. It's supposed to be a forgery. But bizarrely, you can find this ancient language written on stones. <laughs> You've got stones from over a thousand years ago with this writing on, even though it was created as a forgery in 1800. I will come back to this writing style because it, it ties in with America and it's very important. But going backwards for the time being, Etruscan reads exactly the same way as the old British writing system. And before that, you go to Anatolia. Uh, we've got the, what they call the Luwians, L-U-W-I-A-N-S, or Luvians in some cases. Now, the word Luwians is a made-up name because there are people in that area before up to about 500 BC who were metal workers. They spoke a strange language. And then at 500 BC, they all departed. And uh, go and look it up. The, the, official, the mainstream researchers are completely bamboozled and baffled. Who were these people? Where did they go? What happened to them? Well, if you read the British records, that's where the Cymru were. And after Troy, they left for Britain. So that's why they can't find them anymore. Uh, and everything fits in. Now, before that, if we go back even further, uh, the people, the Cymru, are referenced in the Bible. And you've got, uh, it could tie in with Omri. There's various references in the Bible to the Cymru. And they tie in with, or might even be, the same people as the 12 tribes of Israel, what's called the Lost Tribes, which, of course, is a funny name because they were never lost at all. They knew exactly where they were. That's the old joke. But, but if you look at Paleo-Hebrew, uh, that's the next project. That seems to read in Welsh as well. It, it doesn't tie in with modern Hebrew. That's a resurrected language. That's something completely different. So what you have is the Bible references uh, to the Cymru and the tribes and where they went. And then we can trace this all the way back then to uh, the time of Joseph, Joseph, when the Hyksos came in and took control of Egypt for a while. Uh, we're all familiar that that then led up to the Exodus. And the Exodus is when we have the founding of the, you know, Judea and Israel and all those stories, which you find in the refers back to British records. So the test for this is, if we go all the way back to Lemnos, the island where the boats met, can you read, there's a, a stone or a stella there, this means a big stone, uh, with writing on it. And sure enough, that translates using the Welsh language. So remarkably, there's these stones, memorial stones, all along the route, and you can read them. It's not even difficult. It's, it's maddening that the uh, officials, experts, won't look at this because it's not difficult. It's, it's fairly straightforward. <laughs> you just need to know which language they're written in. So if you fo so following that back even further, you say, right, well, if they're in Egypt, uh, let's see if we can read hieroglyphics. And sure enough, 
they read in a very straightforward and um, logical way. It's it's it, it's it's very easy. You can learn in well. It, I'll tell you now. In the next five ten minutes, you'll have a good idea how it works. And all you need then is a Welsh dictionary. Like I said, I don't speak Welsh, but I can use a dictionary. And I've also um, in my own books, Cumroglyphics. You can see in there lots of hieroglyphs already uh, translated. I'll, I'll give a couple of very easy examples just okay. to show how, how simple it works. Um, one of the great things about the Welsh language is it has. Um, so I, I, sorry, before I go into that, I'm just going to give, just finish off the history of the language. The, these connections are known about in the 1700s. <laughs> there are books from the 1790s describing the fact that Welsh seems to be the language behind the hieroglyphs. It's just part of this suppression. It can never be allowed. Uh, there was a working committee from Oxford and Cambridge University set up. Uh, in the 1890s, but they got cancelled because of World War One, and it's never been resurrected. So it's not. This hasn't come from nowhere. Uh, in the 1840s, linguists like uh, von Bunsen, who was the world leading linguist at the time, is said was, <coughs> excuse me, all what he called Indo-European languages share a common root. They all come from the same starting language, and as he described it, the Welsh. Uh, jealously guarded this language and it stayed unchanged so what we're really talking about is ancient Assyrian and the Welsh language is the, the least changed version of ancient Assyrian so you'll see it elsewhere like Sanskrit is a very ancient language with the same root and San Sanskrit and Welsh have got a lot of similarities and it's not that Sanskrit came from Welsh or Welsh came from Sanskrit they share a common ancient root one of my favourites is um, the term Buddha. You know the Buddha as in the the, the, the deity. Yes. Well, Bud, Bud is life, and Da in Welsh is good. So Buddha is the good life. And Sanskrit translates, all these things translate using, they're, they're this, you can almost interchange the languages. Uh, and if you hear an Indian accent, they've got a kind of sing-songy accent that we have in Wales. So even that ties together. So it's quite remarkable. And because Wales... This is stuck right on the edge of Europe. It's never really been invaded. There's never been much migration. And I think the nature of the language, as we'll see in a minute, how it ties in with its written form, it's very difficult to change it. It's not as fluid a language as, as English, where you can just coin new words and introduce them and carry on. Very difficult to do that in Welsh. Uh, and this is where I come on to the hieroglyphs. As an example, if you have the, um, a word for knowledge, or knowledge or awareness how would you draw that i'll ask you mark how can you think how how would you draw a symbol for knowledge i have no idea uh well, it's impossible, you, you use isn't like it, really? a light a, a light bulb that would be quite cool in ancient egypt <laughs> uh, well, well you know they have the you know the the, the one that's used oh, the in Dendera ancient one, aliens yeah. But, but yeah. you know, in cartoons, you know, you get the light bulb on someone's yeah. above someone's head. Uh, that's right. That's for an idea, usually, isn't it, or something? But it's, it's, it's almost impossible, isn't it? Concepts. Yeah, yeah. It 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 it, it uh, takes a while for you know, I mean, you just put like uh, like a fountain or something like that. You know, fountain yeah, of knowledge work, yeah. or something. I I, uh -huh. I don't know. So you know, this first thing that comes to mind. Well, the great thing in Welsh language is you don't have this problem because 
uh, almost every word in the Welsh language has at least two meanings. This is where it gets really weird. It's almost as if the language and the hieroglyphs must have come at the same time. They must have come together. I don't know which one came first, even. It's crazy. So in Welsh, the word for knowledge is gwyf. Quite difficult to say. Gwyf. Uh, gwyf. Um, and the word for a goose is gwyf. <laughs> exactly the same word. Gwyf means goose, as in the little bird that runs around the place, or big bird. Mm-hmm. Uh, you eat for dinner sometimes, and gwyf also means knowledge. So if you see a hieroglyph and it's a drawing of a goose, you don't even need to read or write or anything. You just say, you can be two years old or three years old, you say, ah, gwyf, and you've just said it. It means knowledge. You've just read the hieroglyph. There are no letters, there's no spelling, there's no inference. It's that straightforward. It's so compelling. It's, it's, it's a three-year-old could do it. You don't even need to learn how to write. Uh, another great one is, um, oh yeah, I'll tell you what, just to show clever it can get as well. You, if you if you look at hieroglyphs, if you're familiar with them, quite often you will see uh, a goose with a, the sun drawn uh, quite close to it, just above the head usually. You see the sun and the goose together as a combination. Well, in Welsh, the word for sun, these days they say arai. But the spelling is ra. <laughs> the Welsh word for sun is a ra. Same as the ancient sun god or the word for sun power in Egyptian being ra. It's got the same thing as well, then, because ra means um, the power or the, the, the sun god, you know, all those kind of connotations. Mm-hmm. And the great thing is, so what you have is you've got ra, quid. You've got knowledge of the power put together. But it's even better than that, because if you say them together, ragwith, well, the Welsh word ragwith, just put an L in, almost identical, ragwith, is the Lord. So if you go to a church service on a Sunday, they will praise a ragwith, praise the Lord. And in the hieroglyphics, that's the sun and a goose, ragwith. It's it's phenomenal. It's quite, it's almost scary when you you start doing it, because it's that easy. I'll give you one more quick one. Is the, okay. is uh, to welcome? Welcome be difficult to draw. You could try and draw some with their arms open or something, but um, in Welsh, easy. The Welsh word for welcome is croeso, croeso. So welcome to Wales, croeso i Gymru. Um And luckily, the or by, by design or whatever it is that makes this work, uh, the word for a cross is croes. So you just draw a cross. So if you see a cross in hieroglyphs, that's a welcome, that's croiso. If you see a goose, that's quiz, that means knowledge. If you see a sun, that means the power. So you've just learned three bits of hieroglyphs. And it's nothing like the mainstream. You know where they have all these um, denominators and multiple sounds and single sounds and denoters. And, you know, you look at conventional hieroglyphs, it's madness. The same hieroglyph can mean Ten different things. It depends where it is, what it's next to, because they have got no idea. Uh, they are so fundamentally wrong. When they see, say, a goose, instead of realizing it's a word with knowledge, they think it's a letter. 
So you imagine you've got a sentence, a list of words forming a sentence, and the person translating it is using the wrong language because they think it's Coptic, and they think each symbol represents a letter instead of a word. So instead of getting a sentence, you end up with these ridiculous words that I'm sure everybody's seen in Egyptian books, when it's like N-W-T-W-M-N-W or something, you know? And they go, ah, but there's no vowels, you see. There's no vowels in uh, hieroglyphs. It's nonsense, absolute nonsense. They, they're looking at words and they're trying to read them as letters. It's that fundamentally wrong. They're not even close. They're not even on the same island. Now, one thing to add on that, where the conventional did get close, there's one exception. And the exception is uh, something called cartouches, which people might have heard of, cartouches. Right. It, it, it's just a ring you draw around some of the hieroglyphs to denote someone's name is inside the cartouche. And this was what uh, Champollion and Thomas Young latched onto back in the early 19th century, when they were guessing, really. There was no Egyptology as a subject. No one had any idea. They were trying all sorts of languages, getting nowhere. And then uh, good old Champollion, when he was about seven years old, had a dream, and he dreamt that it was Coptic. <laughs> really, I, have a look. I, I, I list all this in the book. That's how they decided on the language, by a dream of a seven-year-old in France with no training. And the whole Egyptology subject has been built on that. It's that so crazy it is. Now, what, this is helps to have some graphics, but just go through it. The first word name they noticed on the Rosetta Stone and that's another program in itself, we won't go into right now, they noticed that the, um, the symbols inside one of the cartouches could be used, seemed to spell the name Ptolemies. If you heard of Ptolemies, he was the successor to Alexander the Great, the mm -hmm. Ptolemaic dynasty, all that kind of stuff. So you had a P, they said, ah, that's square, it's a door, and what we're going to do, we're going to use the initials. So they thought, right, P, we need a P for a door. The trouble is, in Coptic, there is no word for a door beginning with a P. So what they did was they said, oh, well, the Egyptians couldn't have had a, a word for door. I mean, have you ever heard anything so ridiculous? Why would you draw a door if you don't have a word for it? So what they did then, they, they, this guy came along, Rossellini, who was an expert in um, Aramaic and uh, a couple of other languages. Ah, we'll just use uh, the word for to go in from another language and stick that in because it begins with a P. It was ludicrous. In Welsh, now this, this has to explain some, because I, this can confuse people. The hieroglyphs are always words. They're always the same word. So don't let this confuse you. But what you can do is like modern acronyms. So you know if you have NATO, you've got North Atlantic Treaty Organization. This, it, the words are the important thing. It's meaningless without the words. NATO is just a collection of initials. It's just an, ac an acronym. It's just a sound, okay? Like NASA or any of these things. Right. You need to know what the words mean, but the initials spell something. So this is what they did with the pharaohs. So Ptolemy, a door in Welsh is Porth. Well, the start of Porth is Por, which means supreme one. And then they have the little semicircle, which is a cake, which is Titian in Welsh. You've got T. So you have supreme one you are. And by the way, the syntax in Welsh also matches because it's, um, I think the easiest way to think of it is like uh, Yoda speak. So in, in Welsh, yeah. So in Welsh, you wouldn't say um, you are a good boy. 
you would say, there's a good boy you are. So you have to get used to this different word order. They noticed this back in the 1790s. It was another clue to it being Welsh. But anyway, let's not get too technical. So we start off with, so supreme one you are. And then you can go through the whole of um, Ptolemy's. They, they all read. There's an olive, so that's olivide in Welsh. And then you've got a lion, so that's clew. So you get all the letters, Portol, all the initials spelled Ptolemy's, as it should do. But better than that, it's so clever, because then you can read a description of Ptolemy's. So it says, supreme one you are, oh, off the top of my head now, was it? The successor to, uh, clew is abundance, the successor, successor to the abundant uh, land he is supreme. You know, you can, you can read it, and it spells his name. And if that doesn't convince people, it's very hard to know what else would, really. <laughs> Ross, I had a, um, a question, information from one of my research books that um, might correspond with what you're discussing about uh, Troy, um, maybe this information is get, uh, getting things backwards. I, uh, oh, well, just try but, it. Oh, yeah. Yeah, well, you know, let's take a, uh, just a second to uh, talk about it. Um, but, you know, you're saying what uh, Troy happened like uh, 1500 B.C.? Ah, no, that's the, this is the problem. It's 650 BC. This is the, oh. one of the, that's the issue, yeah, 650. Whereas the conventional puts it between 11 and 1400 usually. Okay, well, you know, we know there's, you know, part of the stories about uh, Odysseus wandering all around the place and trying to get get back yeah. home. Yeah, how and, crazy is that? Yeah, and in... Uh, Aubrey Burles, you know, the Stone Circles of the British Isles, and on um, page 98, he's talking about uh, uh, physically different from the slighter gracile Neolithic stock. These powerfully built foreigners first came to the country, you know, England, at the beginning of the second millennium and settled around the mares in islets of eastern Britain before eventually moving inland up the rivers that offered them passage through the unknown forests. And over several centuries, the intruders mingled increasingly with the, the natives, sometimes peacefully, sometimes as overlords, uh, sometimes by conquest. Um, I, okay, maybe the timelines don't match up, but... Well, well, okay, just to help on that one, then, the, okay. when he's talking about 2nd millennium BC, I mean, the, the dates more likely seem to be about 1600 BC, which is not far off what he's saying. I mean, okay. we shouldn't quibble over that. None of us can be too certain. One of the big clues, which I think he was alluding to, is you have these uh, stone circles, which seem to be for astronomical reasons. Right. And a brilliant researcher called Alexander Thom. Supposed mm -hmm. to say Tom, but I always say Thom because you can remember how to spell his name T H O M. He did a lot of calculations. He's a brilliant surveyor, and he worked out the alignments. And then by following the progression, he reckoned they were built from about 1800 BC onwards. And the main migration would have come about 1600 BC. Seems to be there. And then how how 
who that person, um, I haven't read his work, but I'm very curious to know who these people were they mixed with when they got there, because all the accounts are the island was pretty empty. And I, and I, I think what seems to have happened was the, um, the North the people, I think people are aware more now that the poles shift a lot. And if you read people like Velikovsky, who was writing way back in the 1940s and 50s, He's explaining it's physically impossible for the whole world to become an ice ball, to become like a snowball. The, the, the energy has to go somewhere. It's a sealed unit. You know, the, the physics doesn't work. What's far more likely is that the poles shift. They're still shifting. They've got about 12 feet a year at the moment. Mm-hmm. And at some point, the North Pole was in Minnesota. It's been quite far south. So what would have my, this is my conjecture a little bit now. It's hard to prove this. But it seems that uh, Northern Europe became icebound. And it's a possibility that there were people living there prior to this, going back many thousands of years, which is a whole different area of study, and were forced into the Middle East uh, due to the, to find somewhere more temperate to live. And then when he got to about 2000 BC and the ice starts retreating, People seem to be returning home rather than discovering it for the first time. They're returning. Uh, and they, there's a fast, and this, in the Britain's Hidden History Group, a whole line of study, and Wilson of Blackett have written about this as well, is you can see so uh, vastly ancient things in Britain. It's crazy. Like we've got a situation in southeast Wales where you've got the whole Babylonian uh, foundation stories mapped out in the landscape it's it's absolutely bonkers um you've got like enki and all these people and you've got a you've got a farm that's called the white shoulder you like, what is that about and then you plot it on a map and then you find another farm which is the foot the arm the leg and then you've got the paradise where you go after death and you've got the whole story the whole foundation babylonian myth in the place names still to this day it, it's just mind-blowing uh, and the Zodiac in there, we've just got a new book out up in Gwynedd. You can see how the Zodiac was mapped out. So that's a whole area. I mean, you can, you can spend the rest of your life talking about that, not yeah. just one show even. <laughs> yeah. I want to get back to Odysseus, because that's okay. interesting you mentioned him, because um, the book I'm just putting the finishing touches to uh, talks about where Odysseus's journey actually describes. Oh, by the way, one theory is that uh, Homer uh, was not a person. Homer is a, uh, a disguise, if you like, and it's the, it, the, the stories of Homer, stories of the Gumri. So Homer becomes Gumri. They're the same. If you look at it uh, from a word point of view, they're the same root. Uh, and, and, and we have, we, it seems pretty certain now, there were two Trojan Wars, which confuses things. So there was a Trojan War about 1100 BC, which is in the southeast of England in Cambridgeshire. And the, the place things around there, you know, there's a Troy, there's Gog and Magog. <laughs> the whole thing is mapped out. You've got Priam's Way running through the town, very near to Cambridge University, but they don't seem to look outside their own windows. And then later you have the, the 650 Troy, which is where you have the Egyptian connections uh, with uh, Ramses II, Necho II, all these people being the characters that you see in the trojan war once you move the date correctly to 650 no longer need to have a dark ages that 500 year gap everything matches so the mainstream timeline 
you have, for example, the Hittites are sort of flourishing until about 1200 BC. They then disappear for 550 years, and then you get the Neo-Hittites reappearing in the same place. <laughs> well, if you take out that 550-year gap, they just continue. No, there is no disappearing and reappearing. And it's the same with the written language, because the Greeks, this, the conventional thing is to say the Greeks invented the writing, whereas the Greek own records say they got the writing from the Kimaroi, which seems to be the Cymru, as the Kimaroi passed through on their migration from Anatolia on the way to Britain. Because the official narrative doesn't make sense. What they say is uh, writing was started in 1250 BC, but no one wrote anything for 600 years. I mean, really? Imagine if you came up with these ideas today, how you get laughed at. So somehow or other, this Trojan War took place in 1200. Oral tradition kept it alive for 600 years. And then Melisigenes, who became known as Homer, wrote all this down around about 650. And at the time, people were up in arms. They were furious. There were Roman families saying, because they descended from Troy via Aeneas and Brutus, there was a huge argument. This is not new, this historical controversies. Because they were saying, look, my great-great-grandfather fought at Troy. There's his spear, you know, there's his shield. Mm -hmm. You can't put it back 600 years because I'm, I'm missing about 20 generations of people. And it seems to be part of the attempt at the time, even way back then, to give Greece a much greater antiquity than it actually had. It seems not a lot was going on uh, in Greece before about 650. Uh, but the Lyceum and places like that wanted to make Greece into the senior civilization. This is massive. We get to the work of Wilson and Blackett and look at how they're... Because uh, all these timelines then interact with the... Uh, timelines of Egyptology and the pharaohs and the lists of dynasties and they all go back to the notes of Manatheo and they're all completely wrong, partial information even Josephus writing 2,000 years ago was explaining the, the timelines are wrong <laughs> and 2,000 years later we're still trying to follow them uh, I'll just, just very quickly Manatheo described lots of small uh, petty kingdoms in parallel and the historians have run them as one long series. So a history that lasts a few hundred years becomes a few thousand years. It's completely messed up. And it's absolutely fascinating to go through it all. I can see the time. I, I, I've got to jump quickly to bring America into this, because um, sure. I don't know how long we're going to go on for. But uh, I'll we get, go about another 20 minutes. Then okay. I, I, I do have to uh, oh, no problem. It's just, it's so get, go it's to so an appointment. Yeah, as you can see, every one of these is a rabbit hole you can dive down. Mm -hmm. We've got the book Moses and the Hieroglyphs, which goes uh, sorting out the dates of all the dynasties. The great thing about that, it also shows one of the things that's thrown at the Bible in modern times is that uh, none of these old biblical characters existed. Where's the evidence? Well, of course, we can now read hieroglyphs and you can read all about Moses in the hieroglyphs, which is why the book is called that. You can read the story of Joseph. You can, you can now read these things. Um, might surprise some people to discover that Moses, or in Welsh, uh, Musef, which means he of the basket, which is pretty cool. So Musef, he of the basket, the, the, the what was that? I forgot the name they've given it now, the English Museum. The museum it's in London Museum. You can see Moses. But they, Batar Hitsos or something they called it. They got the name completely wrong. They don't realize the evidence is sitting there on public display. 
and he has a mausoleum in Egypt. Uh, it surprised me, and I think it might surprise people listening, that after going to the Promised Land, Moses then returned back to Egypt to be uh, buried. And this is where you get that rather curious story, if you remember in Exodus, where, um, I try to keep this very polite, but a young, a young lady was uh, put in his tent with him. Uh, and in the morning, they had to find out if anything happened. <laughs> Let's put it very politely. And the reason they did that is they did they want to make absolutely certain that Moses is well past it. And that if he was allowed back to Egypt, he couldn't uh, produce new offspring and create any dynastic problems. So it's a very fascinating part of history to look at. And then the Trojan War 650 book, which explains who all the protagonists were in the, the, the Middle Eastern Trojan War. And how it all revolves around Egypt, as Homer tells us it does, if you read it. We want to zoom into America quickly, because um, we've gone all the way back with the language. If we start going forward again, back to uh, 500 AD, that's when we have the birth of the very famous King Arthur, uh, 503 AD. How he's become a myth or legend is an absolute, well, insult to Wales, really, because he's the most well-recorded character of that whole era. He's in the Brutes of England. He's in the Anglo-Saxon Chronicles. He's in there. You can see his name in the charters, in the cha in the cathedrals. There are stones with his name on. That He's the most well-recorded character of the whole, what is laughingly called the Dark Ages. And just to add, the term Dark Ages was invented specifically to hide the British records, because that it's not dark at all. It's incredibly well recorded, but no one is allowed to look at it. Um, do, do you realise, for example, uh, um, Caxton introduced printing into uh, London in 1472. Immediately, immediately, a law was passed making it illegal to print anything in the Welsh language. And it was over 200 years that law stood in place. There was no Welsh history books or anything produced. And before that, if you go right back to Edward II, you could be executed for owning a pen or parchment in Wales. That's so ruthless it's been, this suppression. So anyway, moving on from that, before I, um, there, in 562, the other massive, massive event in British history, the biggest event in the whole of British history, and no one's really heard of it. And that was a comet struck the island of Britain. It, it went through Sweden. So it's accepted in Sweden there was a comet in the 560s. It then went, went smashing through England, which is why uh, all these old buildings that they refer to as Roman, that they're all destroyed. And they have all these crazy ideas, well, British people couldn't live in houses. No, yeah, anyone would rather live in a field than in a house. Of course not. But the, the comet destroyed everything. You might have heard of the vitrified forts in Scotland where the heat was so intense it melted them. Are you aware of that? And then this comet trailed on through southern Ireland and then it ended up uh, crashing into Bolivia and Peru. So you've got research going on in Peru and Bolivia. Yes, there it is. You've got in Sweden. Yes, there it is. Not accepted in Britain where most of the evidence is. Uh, although dendrochronologists and uh, people like Ferguson and people like that acknowledge it happened. But anyway, the, 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 the outcome of this event was this amazing civilization, this advanced civilization which had uh, codes of laws which still form the basis of common law. 
You know, you've got uh, Mulmudian law, it's called, which is still referenced in law courts today, over one and a half thousand years later, was smashed to pieces. And that's why wandering tribes could come in then from um, Germany and uh, Denmark, places like that. The Anglo-Saxons, if you like. There was no conquest. There was no war. There was no fighting. There was a, des- a smashed up country and they could grab bits as they wished. So, <clears throat> during them, it seems that during this comet, the, someone called uh, Madoc, which will start to ring some bells with people, I think, in America. Mm-hmm. Not Maradoc. This is Madoc. And this is 6th century. Not the 12th century oh. forgery that everyone knows about. The one that was dreamt up by Hyluk. Um What was his name? Uh, yeah, hey, hey, I always get his name wrong. Hackluck. Anyway, it was, that was a forgery designed to support the claim of Queen Elizabeth I in North America. The real migration was in the 6th century. Uh, he got driven out to sea. The story goes he got driven out to sea by this storm created by the comet. He ends up in um, North America. After a few years, he sails back and says, hey, our country's been decimated and ruined. We found a new country. It's pretty much undeveloped. You know, there's just... Uh, uh, there's no great castles and civilization there, particularly. The land's there for the taking. Let's go over. So they did a second expedition just to check he wasn't making it up, and he got it right, and they could actually find it. And then the third exhibition is ex- exhibition <laughs> expedition became a massive migration, and that's when you talk about 700 ships going over, about 70,000 people migrating from Wales uh, to the Kentucky area. Uh, into the Ohio Basin. This is the place. And there is this is one of the areas which, um, again, another book needs to come out. We're working so hard at the moment. And I've been talking to a lot with, I think, you know, Lee Pennington from right. the Kentucky Ar- Ancient Kentucky Society. Yep. Uh, to speak with Rick Osman and um, various other people. Good guys. There's so much, yeah, very good people. And there's so much evidence to support this in America. And this gets right back to where we started an hour ago, is this proclamation that Smith made in 1900 that anything pre-Columbus has to be Native American. And it's all part of the same cover-up. It's bonkers. Because um, you've got like the traditional Welsh boats, you know, the the coracles, little round Mm -hmm. leather boats they use. Well, they're in a certain part of America. Most significantly is the mounds, which... I was mentioning earlier, a very important part of the ancient British culture, these large mounds with spirals going up them and stuff. Well, they're there in America. Mm-hmm. And there was even armor found <laughs> with the Welsh emblems on from probably the 6th century or 7th, well, almost undoubtedly. Uh, there was cotton goods which had been woven, whereas there's no native weaving going on in America. And most significantly, which is what we're talking about language tonight, if you go into uh, a lot of the caves, you will see markings on the walls. And once again, amazingly, this can be read using the ancient Welsh writing language of Colburn. It's Colburn. You can look at it on the walls and you can read it. It's not quite as easy as the hieroglyphs, but it's not much more difficult. Uh, so maybe you've heard of Bat Creek Cave is one, and there's um, the Brandenburg Stone is very famous. There, there's lots of these sites in America, which, um, well, sadly, it seems to be uh, 
I know, hushed up. <laughs> the only way I can think of saying it. Because Alan Wilson, who's the real genius, who worked, um, well, all of this out, really, he, was, he did a series of lectures back in the 90s, and he even did their prestigious uh, Bemis lecture in Boston. It's a very famous lecture. It tends to be senators and famous history professors. And Alan Wilson was the, the main speaker there that, that year. And uh, explaining this um, magic migration in the 6th century. And the tragedy is, because those people you talked about earlier, like Lewis and people like that, who were finding Native Americans who could speak the Welsh language, they were finding tons of evidence and all these artifacts and things. The problem was they were not aware of the 6th century migration. They were trying to pin everything to the 12th century migration. And what's happened since is the 12th century migration, the Maradoc, which has been slightly corrupted, can be shown to be a bogus thing that was created for political reasons. If they had known about the 6th century one, then they would have, then they would have understood why the burial mounds are there, why you have you know, certain types of well, the language, the writing. That goes back to the 6th century. So it's a pretty, pretty big... Uh, <laughs> There's a massive information download for everyone to try and take in there. Way, way too much for one go, but uh, I hope it gives an idea at least. And, and uh, what about all the Roman coins that you and Lee have been talking about? Uh, well, I think, yeah, that would tie in with that as well. Well, two things. One, I don't see uh, – one, one of the things it mentions in the old Welsh records – yeah, good question – is that they had ancient knowledge – and it would seem that the 6th century journeys weren't the first ones, that they'd going back and forth a long time. I know, I, I've read plenty, it seems plenty of people went to American ancient times, I think. I mean, it seems to be a lot of evidence for, um, you know, Chinese arriving on the West Coast, various other people. Uh, oh, yeah, the Odyssey thing, I almost forgot, which ties in with this. Uh, I mean, the, the, the official explanation that the Odyssey, for those who don't know, I mean, I think everyone knows, is this great sea journey which took either three years or ten years, depending on how you translate the original, was in the Mediterranean. I mean, it's ridiculous. You can, you can float over the Mediterranean in a day or two, and somehow the greatest sailor of his era took three to ten years to find his way home in familiar waters. It's just ridiculous. <laughs> Absolutely ridiculous. So what, again, Alan Wilson, what they've worked out, Wilson and Blackett, if you actually read what it says in the Homer's Odyssey uh, and the Iliad, combine the two, really, uh, what, what you'll, the, the return home journey is um, down the east side of the Mediterranean, so along the Anatolian coast. They get to Egypt. All these characters were from Egypt, Agamemnon, Menelaus. You can see these red-haired mummies. One of those is red-haired Menelaus. That's his mummy. There was Greek colonies in the north of Egypt. They weren't coming from the mainland Egypt. That's another story. You know, that's a huge, huge thing. Getting back to the journey, from Egypt, they went south, not north, into the Mediterranean. Part of the Iliad says, uh, the Odyssey, sorry, says that um, at one point they sailed south for 40 days. Well, if you do that in the Mediterranean, you're going to hit Africa <laughs> after about day two or even day one. You can't yeah, go it's south not for 40 days. 
Yeah, it's not a 40-day uh, voyage. Physically impossible. Absolutely not. Whereas, if you go down to the Red Sea, um, this book will be available online, so uh, it's going to be a, a slightly different way of doing it, so people in America will be able to access this. And then you go across to northwest India and Pakistan. There's a place called uh, Moadaro, Mohandaro, Moadajo, there's a few different spellings, uh, which ties in with the journey. You then sail south, and you can sail south 40 days down the west coast of India. And this is where it gets remarkable journey, because everything ties in in the Odyssey with the journey being a journey around the world, not a journey around the Mediterranean. So you have things like the, um, the cannibals, so this would be the Borneo Islands. You then have the, the peaceful natives that they meet, and that's the Aborigines. Then you have the big warlike ones, which is the New Zealanders. And then you get those curious things, if you know the story of Odyssey at all, where they talk about uh, a day lasting uh, 24 hours. So if a man uh, could eat and not need sleep, he could work two days in one day. Well, this is because they get nearer and nearer to the South Pole. So they're getting this eternal daylight. They're obviously there in the summer for the Southern Hemisphere. That's one of the big clues. Also, the navigation problems they have, because they're using the, the Northern Star map, and suddenly they're in the Southern Hemisphere. All their landmarks have gone. So what the journey then seems to have gone through uh, east from there, across the Pacific, and this is where they hit the southern tip of uh, South America. And if you remember the story, oh, what's it called? Um, I can't remember the Greek name for it. They've got the two cliffs they have to pass through, and it's the, the, the land of fire and the roaring seas, uh, if you remember this part of the story. Okay, uh, and they have two through. possible routes. Well, if you look on the map, this land of fire... <laughs> do, do you know any Spanish? What's, do you know what the Spanish for land of fire is? Um, no. Tierra del Fuego. <laughs> and there it is. It's still on the maps. Tierra del Fuego. Okay. And that's the way they cut through the southern tip of South America. So you can show that um, this is, and by the way, I should explain at the beginning, this was not um, Odysseus. This is an old Egyptian story that has been rewritten using um, characters that the audience would be familiar with. His name is probably Ben Hanath, and it's an older Egyptian story, uh, probably seven, 800 BC, something like that. So then he would have gone up the... He then, uh, if you have um, in the Odyssey, you have the sacred cows of Zeus, and they can hear them lowing and mooing across the water, and they're told not to eat them. Well, if you go east from uh, Tierra del Fuego, uh, you go to the Falkland Islands, and that's where you hear these, these, these huge herds of seals, <laughs> which make them sound very similar to uh, the cows. Uh, and it also talks then they overwintered. They had to sow crops, grow the corn, and then they headed north. And that goes up the east coast of South America before they cut across the Canary Islands, which is where they see the friendly people. And that explains then why they end their journey going through the Pillars of Hercules, which, of course, is Gibraltar. Why on earth would you be coming through the gates of uh, Pillars of Hercules to get back to Egypt? You've got to be outside the Mediterranean. Right. You have you, to be. Yeah, they're in the Atlantic. Yes, yes, yes. So what Wilson Blackett done, I don't know how they worked it out, it's just mind-blowing. It's only a very short book. 
filthy uh, 100 pages or something. And it's just the most fantastic story. And every step of the journey is explained and makes sense uh, and where they went. So um, there you go. <laughs> you can see we've we got a lot going on at the moment. It's trying to re uh, unhide whatever the word is for un unhide uh, all this history that's been hidden from us. Okay. Um, a couple quick questions. Um, that Odysseus, like okay, going up uh, the eastern coast of South America. Uh -huh. It, that is starting to cross over a little bit into um, Book of Mormon and some of the right, right, yes, uh, South American cultures that migrated to North America. Oh, okay, it, 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 there's um, we, we can save that, uh, develop that uh, topic for another. Yeah, show. I don't know There's... too much about that one, but I have to say this whole idea of um, the Welsh uh, and, and other people as well. I'm not saying it's just the Welsh. I think the idea that um, small boats could find little dots like the Easter Islands in the middle of a enormous Pacific, and yet no one could find this huge landmass that goes from pole to pole, you know, America. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's people rowing across the Atlantic for charity these days. There was an 18-year-old uh, woman did it on her own. I mean, it's, like, it's not that difficult a journey. The idea that no one knew this enormous landmass is there is it, it, absolutely bonkers, really. So getting back to the Roman coins, I mean, as Lee Pentel always points out, it's the very loosest term uh, Roman because the, the problem we have is that the, everything that was British from that period is called Roman whether it was Roman or not. And what do you mean by Roman? Do you mean someone from Italy or just that era? You know, it, even that's difficult. Mm -hmm. I have a feeling there was uh, plenty of traffic back and forth because you also got the Minnesota Copper, which, uh, uh, as um, oh, I wish I remember who Lee Pennington quoted, he said in, uh, in Europe you've got a situation where all uh, historians are going, where did all the copper come from for the Bronze Age? Mm -hmm. And in Minnesota, all the historians are saying, where did all the copper go? <laughs> it would seem that the Minnesota copper uh, is what uh, was, was the basis of the Bronze Age. You know, that's where the copper came from. And then okay. the, tin, the tin to mix with it would come from Cornwall. So you're on the same sort of trading route. And that was one of the questions I had jotted down about about my only... Um, kind of like Welsh word is like what about these root words like King Arthur's birthplace Tintagel and yes. Tintern Abbey it, 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 like they aren't that far apart but they're well, well Tintagel is a mistranslation it's Din Dag and Din Dagol is oh, I can't remember the Welsh word it's the place of the something it's up in North Wales this is one of the problems with Tintagel the, the castle you see there now was built in the 12th century. So it's about 700 years late for King Arthur, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. So it's a wonderful, evocative site, but it's uh, not the correct one. One of the, one of the confusions which has led to all this is that the, the, the capital, uh, the most important little part of 
uh, South Wales was called Kearney. And you can see it on the old maps. Um, Cardiff, for example, the current capital of Wales, which was only a small fishing port back in the day, was part of Kearney. Kearney was the, the capital, was what became known as Camelot. There's um, a place there, which I did a visit, a visit and a video on recently, called Melin, and it's the, it's to do with the yellow sulphur that's found there. Melin means uh, yellow in Welsh. So Melin or Melin. when the Normans took the story back with them to France, Melia became Melo, and that became Camelot. So you can see the site of Camelot. Nothing there, of course. <laughs> you could, you could, uh, I'm trying to get some archaeology done. You can see where the castle was. And on the old maps, it's called Castle Field, and you can see an outline of it, but you can't get any official interest, which is a bit bizarre. Uh, and the other one which comes in then is that um, the, the massive red herring, really, is uh, Glastonbury. Because uh, it's, it's sad, really, because uh, millions of people go to Glastonbury. I've been there. Uh, what they don't realize is that um, Joseph Arimathea, who was claimed to have gone there and planted the holy um, thorn and all that stuff, well, he was obviously first century. He was alive at the time of Jesus. And King Arthur was alive in the 6th century, so the 500s. Whereas Glastonbury uh, didn't become a religious site until the 900s. It was hundreds of years too late. And all it was at first was a small uh, place uh, for burials and stuff. And then uh, in 1184, that's off the top of my head, I think that's right though, 1184, the roof burnt down and they had to raise money. And then they came up with this wonderful scheme which involved the king of the time, who I think was Henry II. And what he wanted to do was, uh, well, for one, they wanted to create what we would call a tourist attraction to get people to do pilgrimages there and donate money, which would pay for the new roof and the rebuilding. And they made, you should, listen to, you should look at the full name of list of claims all sorts of relics and famous people and bits of the cross and anything you could think of, really. And they went and dug up two bodies uh, from the place, the other place you mentioned, from Tinton. And they might have got two other British royals, sadly, and they moved the bodies so that they could plant them again at uh, Glastonbury. Uh, they also found a giant, which turned out to be a cow bone. I mean, the whole thing was embarrassing. This fraud was... Uh, revealed and blown open 700 years ago. And they're still taking money off the back of it. It's absolutely the biggest scandal anywhere you can think of. It's a well-known uh, forgery. There was no church there at the time of Joseph or Arthur. It's known when they invented the scheme. They invented other schemes at the same time. And they've been ripping people off for seven and 800 years <laughs> with the same scheme. And the, the, the place names around there, by the way, were changed in the 15th century to add to the story. The, the local villages and stuff had their place names changed to try and make it seem like more like the Arthur stories. They actually renamed them. <laughs> it's it's the, dreadful. No, I, I, I have a photo of the uh, you know, grave site. Yeah, where, yeah. It, it, uh, so, uh, do I get my money back with interest? Yeah, I think you should. Yeah, I mean, it's still a beautiful place to see, but it ain't Arthur and it ain't Joseph. Because you can go through the story of um, Joseph Arimathea. Uh, the place he went to is, is Glastenis, which is similar, sounds similar to Glastonbury. 
and he could track all this down. And that's um, that's another not enough time tonight. But the whole area, that's where Arthur the First was from, because there was two Arthurs. There's Arthur the First who fought the Romans, and there's Arthur Second in the sixth century who fought the uh, Saxons, Angles, Jukes, Picts, whoever else he fought. So there's two Arthurs that causes confusion. Because people say, how could it be Arthur? He couldn't be 250 years old. It's like, well, no. There were there were eight King Henrys. Well, there were nine actually. That's another story. Uh, and they were they were about three King Arthurs, two famous ones. So, uh, and you can see his burial site as well. All these places have been located over the last uh, 30, 40 years. You can see all the burial sites, um, the burial mounds where they're buried, the place names uh, are still there. For example, right, check this out. The place where Arthur the First burial stone is, the place to this day is called Arthurstone. I mean, if it had hands, it would slap you in the face. The, the place next to it where the ancient British kings are buried is called Old Bury. It's the old burial site. It's called Oldbury. It, it, it's absolutely bonkers. Uh, and um, the old capital of England back in those days uh, was Roxeter. So if you go back to the Roman era, it's called Wall these days. And that's just down the road. So where the capital was, where the palaces were in England, in Warwickshire, that's in the place. The place names all around it, the court of this. The trouble is that what they've done is um, they... Uh, I'm glad to use the word. They've bastardized Welsh words into English words. So, for example, if you see a place called Henley, well, that sounds very English, Henley. Well, what it is is hen fleece. Hen fleece. Hen is old and fleece is court. So anything with a lot of places in Lee on the end are actually court. So hen fleece is the old court. And then you'll see another Lee, which is the court of whoever. And, and those places are all around this ancient burial site of Arthur I, who is from Warwickshire. And I think he's gone into legend. This is something, you know, a bit of an inside track of what we're looking at, is that uh, the old folklores about Guy of Warwick actually are re referring to Arthur I. And he's the one who then went over with the British army in the 380s, invaded Gaul, uh, smashed up the Romans, and ended up all the way as far as Greece. And he's known as Arthur of Greece, not because he's from Greece, but because he fought battles there. And ended up there. He was the king of Greece. So, for example, in uh, World War Two, uh, the famous British general was Montgomery. He, he commanded uh, most of the American army at one point. That's another little oh. story for you. <laughs> anyway, Montgomery, because he did so well in North Africa, he's known as Montgomery of Alamein. Uh, Alamein, the big battle site in North Africa. Mm -hmm. He's not from Alamein. That was his famous battle. So Arthur of Greece, uh, he ended up fighting all the way down in Greece. And his body was brought back when he was uh, killed, and that's where he's buried. So uh, all these places are there. The evidence is there. The names, the writing. It's really, really frustrating. You know, this is not just um, people coming up with ideas and trying to make just things sound like it or guessing. You've got a writing system. All you have to do, all you have to do, what Wilson and Black have been pushing now for 30, 40 years, is read the old records don't change them. Don't interpret them. Just read them and follow them. And the last thing I'd like to end on is that um, part of this invention of a Celtic myth was to create this idea of an other world, which is supposed to be where the fairies live and this kind of thing. Other world is America. The Spanish called it New World, the New World. 
the, the British or the Welsh call it the other world. That's all it is. It's not fairy tales. It's stories about what the journeys back and forth to America, what happened in America. You've got caves here with drawings of uh, buffalo on them. There's a, a drawing on a, a rock not far from where I live with a stone face carved out. looks like um, a Native American. You've got a church wall in Stoke Dry where there's a painting on the wall of a king being shot to death by guys with bows with feathers in their hair. It's mountains of evidence. It's absolutely scandalous. Well, yeah, I, they, it, 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 the story that uh, really grabs my attention is uh, St. Brendan's Voyage. Yeah. Well, look at St. Brendan. Yeah, Brendan, he uses the... If you look at Brendan's Voyage, he uses the king's map, it's called. The king, well, the king was Arthur. That's the map he used. He went to start not long after um, Arthur. And also, the other thing that people don't like is that Brendan, because Christianity came from Wales into Ireland, Patrick, who converted the Irish to Christianity, Brendan also had um, British Christianity. That's where his background was from. But uh, Irish people don't like to hear that. <laughs> but if you look at this record, look at the story of Brendan. Not only does he have a map, I don't know how well you know the story, but it also says in the story of Brendan, you will not get there by a small boat made out of skins. A curragh, I think they were called, the Irish boats. And he went to the people who knew how to make proper wooden boats and had been there before. And they're the ones who sailed into America. And that was the Welsh. It's in the story of Brendan. Go and have a look. More confirmation. Okay. Um it, Sorry, I jumped in a bit on top of you then. No, this is true. It, um, ha, how about we end there and pick up with more St. Brendan and more of your uh, research? This was uh, fascinating. Uh, but it, uh, stop store, yes. We try to cover an awful lot of ground to one go, really. Yeah, yeah and, and uh, uh, you know, get, give you some time to uh, plug uh, – you know, your websites, and th th then we'll uh, wrap up for the evening. Uh, and oh, thank you very much. Get, yes. get, get over to the pub. I have to get Dad. And, uh, you know, I just oh, want yeah. to thank you no, for yes. a wonderful afternoon. Oh, thank you. I've thoroughly enjoyed it. Yeah, it's um, great. <laughs> um, yeah, well, the, go on to um, YouTube. You'll see stacks of videos. I think I've got 250-odd videos there last count. So I'd recommend go to the playlists and see the area you're most interested in. Like there's a playlist about America and journeys to America and stuff like that. Or I can look at early Christianity or all these different topics. Just type in one word, okay? No apostrophe. My uh, English grammar teacher would be horrified. It's just Britain's hidden history. If you search that, there's a, Ross is there as well, but you just search that, it'll come up because it's quite a popular site now. And similarly, there's a website, all one word, Britain's hidden history. .co.uk and uh, I have time to add plus America's hidden history at the moment because uh, we're looking more and more at that side of things and that, that's quite remarkable really so from there you can see all about the books and all that kind of thing, the books are available and uh, I enjoy the videos yeah, I mean it's, um, and uh, oh yeah, if you're on Facebook there's a very active very friendly group uh, Britain's Hidden History and I know Facebook has a bad reputation, and I wouldn't put my personal stuff on or anything like that. But if you just want to go on to discuss and share information on a subject like this, it is fantastic. 
Everyone's very friendly. It's very polite. There's no rows or no nasties. Nothing like you've been told about Facebook. It's a place where people say, hey, look what I found. What do you think? Disagreements, whatever. Uh, just sharing information. And it's great. All these kind of subjects. And if you want to go on and ask a question, there's almost 2,000 members there. And someone will be able to help with an answer, I'm sure. So start off from any of those points and uh, you'll find the rest, I'm sure. Well, thank you very much, Mark. I really appreciate it. Oh, well, th thank you, Ross. Um, yeah, I've already had uh, one of my mermaid friends tell me how much she already enjoyed enjoyed the show. So, uh, oh, great! Yeah. So, yeah, she, any questions? I'm always up for questions. Uh, 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 well, I'm just fine today. Sorry, yeah. But yeah, just uh, <laughs> line them up. <laughs> just, just come back soon. Yeah, love to, love to. I'm here. Uh, if you got any feedback or questions, I'm. Uh, Always happy to have a go, and if I don't know, I'm happy to say I don't know as well. So, uh, and then we got something new to try and find out. So that's how we move on, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Uh, we we will keep uh, the discussion going. I'm uh, just as intrigued as you are. So, um, yeah, let, let's. Uh, this is perfect, and you know, let's uh, wrap things up there, and we will uh, ha have you back sometime soon. Yeah, I'll be well up for it. Thank you very much, Mark. Always nice talking with you. All right, you take care, much. Ross. Thank you. Take care. God bless.